What really gets my dick hard is. Welcome to Metal Up Your Podcast Radio. I am your host, Clint Wells. It's time for you to sit back, relax, grab a cocktail or a coffee, and go on a ride with me through an hour of music that I will be listening to on tour. I'm glad you're here with me. Buckle up, and I hope you brought your almond butter. Here we are, another Metal Up Your Podcast Radio. How long has it been since I've done one of these? I don't even know. A year? Two years? Was COVID even a thing the last time I did one of these? I don't know. I can't remember. All sense of that has been uh, warped in space-time by the hellish and strange couple of years we've all been through. And um, you know what? At least we did it together. We did it together, didn't we? I know I couldn't have done it without Ethan, without Metal Up Your Podcast, without the listeners, without the tunes, without my family, um, without science. And uh, here we are. We sit now here in 2021, and I am leaving tomorrow for a three-week tour with Morgan Wade, which if I could only have given myself 15 months ago the gift of knowing that all you got to do is hang in there and uh, there will be a light at the end of the tunnel. It was a lot of nights, uh, a lot of long nights without seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And so I'm grateful to be in this position. And uh, I've been listening to a lot of music. And I wanted to share some of that with you guys, um, kind of what's going to be in my ears the next few weeks. And uh, I've also kicked it to the Patreon sitch for a Q&A. And as usual, everyone's come through with a lot of interesting questions. I will be talking all about uh, what everyone threw out there. And I'm looking forward to it. But first, why don't we set that plastic sword on fire? and watch that motherfucker melt. Here's some Monster Magnet. See you in a minute. Waking up, I watch another sun go down. 
Ooh, Monster Magnet Melt. I really enjoy the stoner rock vibes of that Monster Magnet stuff. I rarely understand what the lyrics mean, uh, and nor do I spend too much mental energy seeking to. I let it wash over me um, like a plastic sword on fire. So let's get into some of these questions. I have some of them pulled up. I will try to answer them in the order in which they were received. So uh, let's jump into that here. Wayne Summers asks, what do you think the Metallica 40th anniversary set lists will look like in December? Well, first of all, Mr. Wayne Summers, you have a better idea of that than me. Um, I don't know. You know, I, 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 it's hard to tell. Now, those 30th anniversary shows, they set quite a high standard, didn't they, for what was possible in a set list? Uh, they debuted all the Beyond Magnetic songs. We got all four instrumentals live. Uh, you know, I think that was the debut of To Live Is To Die, also the debut of Suicide and Redemption. Um, we got deep cuts like uh, Dirty Window. We got God That Failed. We got Mustaine coming out for all the Kill Em All songs, all the guests, Glenn Danzig. I mean, is it going to be something like that? I don't know. I think COVID's going to put a wrench in it. The, the, uh, the Black Album anniversary is going to feature heavily into this kind of thing. I hope it's surprising, man. I hope it's I hope it's um, a big treat for the diehards. I know that that weekend is for the diehards, fifth member only with the tickets and stuff. So, um, you know, I would like, I'll tell you what I'd like to see, some love to the deep cuts of Load and Reload. That's going to surprise absolutely nobody who's ever listened to me talk about Metallica. And um, uh, really just that kind of back catalog stuff I'd like to see. I'd like to see the guests again. But again, I think Coven's going to put a wrench in like the guest sitch unless everyone's willing to like kind of bubble up um, for those gigs. So, uh, but like all my buddies and fellow Metallica fans out there, I, I look forward to it. I hope that uh, we have tickets to Friday. I still hope we can go. We have a show on Sunday that I've got to make sure that I'm home for. So as that unfolds, uh, we'll see what happens. But, you know, suffice to say, I'm excited with you, Wayne, and all of our buds across the world for those gigs, uh, it's going to be good to see everybody. Tyler MacArthur says, what are your thoughts about the new Ghost song written for the Halloween Kills soundtrack? And I don't know because I haven't heard it. Um, people ask me all the time, like, have you heard the new, etc.? I don't really, I don't, I'm not, it's rare that I'm like frothing for the new thing, even if bands I love like Ghost. Now, if, if Metallica has a new thing, if Tool has a new album, um, if radio, you know, there's maybe five or six bands that if there's a new thing, I'm checking it out pronto. Um, but ghost, I, I just, it, I'm sure it's awesome. It just doesn't, when I even seeing the sentence now, a new ghost song for the Halloween kill soundtrack, there's a, just a part of me that's like, I'll hear it when it, when it happens to me, you know, there's a big old world out there full of music. And, uh, I trust the universe to bring that song to me, uh, when I need it. So I'm sure it's great, though, because those guys are fucking awesome and they're in their prime. Artists have a I mean, this isn't a scientific, uh, scientifically robust theory, but I believe artists have about a 10 year prime where they're in this fire and uh, where they're at the height of their powers. And Ghost is, I think, probably on the early half of that. So I'm excited to hear it. Anthony Broom says. I've seen a handful of live shows since they became a thing again, and almost every band I've seen has had this palpable energy and gratitude about them about returning to the stage, more so than I've ever picked up on. 
It really has made for some memorable experiences. How have you felt that playing with Morgan and having Ethan up there with you? Um, I I have been experiencing that, but cautiously. Um, without trying to sound too dramatic, I think that for me, the the um, looking down the barrel of my industry completely collapsing was traumatizing. And so I am going into this with trepidation and uh, I feel skittish emotionally about it. Now, Ethan, because of because of who he is, um, Ethan's happy as shit. <laughs> you know, Ethan's like, he's so glad to be making music. He's so glad we're on stage together. He loves Morgan. You know, he's just like a giddy little kid. And I love that about him. I'm not really quite built that way. Uh, I'm also the band leader and the music director for Morgan, which means a lot of what's happening on stage uh, I'm responsible for. And so we're still developing. We're still growing. And uh, we're still putting together what's becoming us. And uh, I, I'm i happiest, you know, as of recording this, I'm happiest when I feel like the plane, we have landed the plane safely. Um, and what that means is we played a great show. We hit all of our marks. Everyone paid attention. Uh, the You know, just meaning we hit our mark, you know. I'm very concerned with that every time we play. Um in terms of being grateful to be working again, yeah, dude, words can't even describe it. It means so much to me. Um, of course, we're also dealing with the issue of like, well, anyone could could come down with COVID, boom, we go home. Someone with Lucero, the band that we're playing with, they contract COVID, boom, it's 10 days. So we're also kind of under this guillotine, it feels like a little bit. We can't really fully enjoy it. At least I feel <laughs> Ethan Ethan may be over there on stage left just happy as a clam. But um I, I'm feeling the weight of the responsibility of it and then also um uh how delicate it is right now. But I, I really look forward to um, you know, I, my personal beliefs is that people should be getting the vaccine. I look forward to us being at a at a level of vaccinated population to where I, we don't have to worry about um you know, any risk, any health risk associated with playing music. Um, the, the combination of, of wanting to make music, but also worrying about it being dangerous for people is just a horrible stew. And, uh, I'm tired of eating it and, uh, I want off that ride. Thank you for the question. And speaking of like being grateful for music and stuff, there's a band that uh, I believe Ethan actually turned me on to. They're a local Nashville band. I don't know these guys, um, but they're becoming one of my favorite, like modern contemporary bands. They're called all them witches and they are a kind of blues based stoner rock Sabbathy, uh, trio that, uh, and first of all, they're called all them witches. I'm already sold on that. They kind of dabble in metal, but it's heavy and it's dark and it's mysterious and it takes you to another place. And I think, uh, the most common thread for me as a music lover or an art lover is uh, I don't care if it's heavy. I don't care if it's Dave Matthews. I don't care if it's Taylor Swift. If I can close my eyes and feel like I've been transported somewhere new, I'm in. It's really as simple as that, period. These guys do that. It's their uh, latest album called Nothing As The Ideal. This is All Them Witches with a song called 41. Enjoy.
love all that interplay between the bass and the guitar. I love that it gets clean and it's a very dynamic band. You know, they're they're kind of they have that kind of cool hypnotic thing, but and then the the chuggy stuff's killer, but they also kind of move throughout all that in a way that's mysterious to me almost. Uh those kinds of dynamics in songwriting aren't really as easy to do as they sound. It's a very it's a very delicate process. Those guys do it really well. I really appreciate uh, their sensibilities. Let's move through some more questions here. Namarta says, besides being able to provide for your family, what are you most excited for and missed the most about touring? Um, I really do love to travel. Uh, now, I, I will complain about it. <laughs> I mean, I love being home, too. Um, I'll kind of complain about anything. It's, it's a fun hobby of mine, but, um, I, I think the world's a beautiful place and I'm, I'm so lucky that I, especially at a younger age in my early twenties, when I really started kicking into this, um, you know, there's nothing like just seeing other cultures, other, other vibes, other communities, you know, it's like, I think, it, I think it, um, there's a really great, great, <laughs> great, there's a really great Mark Twain quote that I'm going to butcher now, but it, he says something like the, the antidote to bigotry is travel. And I definitely experienced that. You know, I was a pretty religious cat in my early twenties and had a lot of, I, I thought I knew a lot of things about the world and it really was traveling, playing music, crashing on people's, you know, crashing on people's loft floors in Boston. I, I remember staying with a professor in Boston who gave me a Richard Feynman book called the, the pleasure of finding things out that changed my life. Uh, crashing in a in a barn with someone in New Mexico, staying in Seattle, uh, New York City. I mean, uh, all of these places, and just and just talking to people, realizing that people believe different things, getting turned on to different ideas, having your mind opened. Um, all of that I have considered to be a very important part of who I am today. So that would be part of it. Now I'm older. I'm 38, and I've been to many of these places. And I now have a family that uh, I want with me. It's it's a strange feeling now to be having a good time in Portland without my wife and daughter because I no longer want many experiences without them. It's it's um, it's hard to explain, but it feels a little joyless, a little colorless without them. And uh, but I don't dwell on that. Like I'm not I'm not walking around like a sad bastard in these towns. I'm having a good time. I'm gonna. I'm really excited to visit record stores again because there's nothing like looking for records in a in a different place, hunting for your white whales, whatever they may be, um, you know, thumbing through a bin and finding something awesome. There's just nothing like it. Doing it with your buds, seeing what they find. So um, those would be some of the things that I am looking forward to and that I missed. Seeing people, uh, seeing seeing joy in people when you play their favorite song, that's a really fun feeling when you're on stage and uh, just knowing that you did a job well done. I really, I really love that about the work that I do. And I mean, you know, it's not lost on me, dudes. At the end of the day, I get it. I get to play guitar, um, which is obviously a dream for myself and for many people. So I don't take that for granted, but I do. Um, you can't just get out there and miss your kid and be like, well, I play guitar for a living. That should put, that should just soothe the boo-boo. It's like you you find a way to put everything where it kind of goes and you try to stay healthy and uh, you try to be grateful. Alan Ashcroft says, enjoy the tour. What are your rigs for this time out, please? Okay, um, I'm taking two amps. I'm taking a Fender Deluxe Reverb and I'm taking a Tyler JT. Oh, 
I, I don't remember what the model is, but it's basically the Tyler version of a deluxe reverb slash Princeton. And uh, we've had a relationship with Tyler for years. Jonathan Tyler, shout out to him. He's also um, given me a JT46 that I had out with the Rodney camp, which is kind of like a, a plexi. I have that in my studio now that I use almost every time I do a session. Um, the guitars that I'm, I've been floating, I think we've all been floating through guitars for the, the summer kind of one-offs to figure out what our magic is. I've landed on my 81 Gibson ES335 and my, I have a SG standard that's kind of a magic sauce that I, that's the guitar I played at the Ryman. And then of course, an assortment of nerdy boutique pedals, overdrives, delays, etc. Now, Ethan's been playing a Jazzmaster and a Fender Coronado through one of his Tyler amps. I think he has one of the Plexi type combo amps. And then he's of course got his um, his spaceship pedal board. He, Ethan's been playing a Duesenberg lap steel on a couple of the songs. He sounds great on that. It's a great kind of country flavor without being, you know, tear in my beer shit. And he's also playing acoustic and he's been bringing out some different guilds for that. Morgan is playing all Gibson acoustics. Uh, she has a great relationship with Gibson. They've given her, I think three guitars. And our bass player is rocking a Fender P bass, pretty standard. And uh, that's kind of what we're rocking now. We're getting some sure microphones for the podcast. Morgan's, we're bringing all of our own microphones for the deck too, just to avoid some, you know, putting our mouths on a microphone that someone slobbered over. And I think that's pretty much it on gear. We're, we're running it pretty tight for this run. You know, we're, we're uh, doing all of our own teching and all of our own setting up. So we're keeping it pretty minimal, pretty chill. I believe Parker, our drummer, is bringing a vintage Gretsch kit, which sounds great, which is awesome. And uh, I hope I have sufficiently answered that question. Um, let's listen to another tune. I mentioned on a recent episode that on a long drive, where I was driving all my little band babies who were sleepy tie tie in the back. I was Papa bearing that and uh, 4 a.m. drive back to Nashville from Ashland, Kentucky, two hours of dark fog. And I was just playing records to keep myself awake. And I played Graceland by Paul Simon, which I love Paul Simon. My usual go-to for him is 1975's Still Crazy After All These Years. I believe Graceland is 1980, maybe a little into the 80s. Generally considered his masterpiece, he himself considers the song Graceland the best song he's ever written, which kind of makes me sad because he's written a lot of songs since then. But um, you're going to hear that song now. It's the title track from Graceland, which this record is interesting. He he went to Africa and largely wrote and recorded this music with African musicians, several of whom would go on to be in his live band for the next 20 to 30 years. And so... Um, it's got a very world music feeling to it. And I just think lyrically he was at the top of his game. This, these are some of the best lyrics on the whole album, by the way. I uh, highly recommend the song Boy in the Bubble. I recommend the song You Can Call Me Al, Crazy Love. Uh, the, the whole album is really worth investigating. But this one is the creme de la creme of this album, probably of his career. Um, it's it, What it's about is mysterious. I'm not quite sure, but... I would encourage you to lean into the lyrics and let them wash over you and let it see how it makes you feel and see if you can find something in them. Uh, I, I find with each season that I dip back into this song and this record that something a little different hits me a little differently. And uh, I hope you like it and I hope you feel the same. Here's Graceland by Paul Simon.
Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. I am following the river down the highway through the cradle of the Civil War. I'm going to Graceland, Graceland, to Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland.
The Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar, and I'm following the river through the cradle of the Civil War. That is so good, dudes, um, for, for me. I mean, I don't know if the Ma the Meatloaf guy out there is going, that's not heavy metal. I really don't know, but uh, for me, it's almost as good as it gets in the whole world. Um, I've mentioned this before, and I think I may have played like an early demo of this next song before, but my friend Rachel Loy and I have an awesome project called Attention Machine that is finally, thank goodness, getting uh, getting to see the light of day. It's been, we've mixed and mastered five of the 10 songs. We booked our first show. Uh, I'm going to be home for 10 days between the first leg and second leg of this Morgan Wade tour, and during that time, we have booked our first ever attention machine gig we've never played these songs live this is a band that started uh rachel's also a big songwriter uh she's a great session bass player she toured and she was a touring player also for hank jr um she's one of my favorite people honestly and uh, we started writing in the hopes of writing the same shit that everyone writes in this town something commercial something that would make us money uh because let's face it she's got three kids i got a daughter we're not a and we're not kids anymore. We uh, we take our job seriously. So we were trying to write something commercial for publishing companies, etc. And we ended up doing the opposite of that and writing something we both actually liked and loved. <laughs> Imagine that. That turned into another a follow-up co-write where we did the same thing. And before we knew it, we were writing once a month and we had 10 of the... We actually have more than 10, but we have 10 now that we love that we want to put on an album. Now, this the way this worked, it went really fast too, which was cool. Not a lot of time to second guess, but we would write the song together. She would she would uh, cut the vocal definitely the vocal and then leave. But in this case, she also played the electric the rhythm guitars and uh, anything we could grab. She's a great bass player, so usually if I could grab a bass, uh, we would. And then she would go bye bye, and I would produce out the track. I would program the drums. I would do all the all. It's a very keys heavy record. Tons of keys, roads, organs, synths, um, any other ancillary guitars. Um, and then when we were ready to actually make the record, we had our friends, Kevin Rapillo. Uh, he actually tracked real drums at his studio. Rachel, uh, from her house, her home studio was able to send me some BGVs, some more bass. We kind of like hodgepodge it together a la early aughts postal service. If you guys remember that band, the Ben Gibbard, sort of Jeannie Lewis, Ben Gibbard, um, trio where they, they called it the postal service because they were basically just sending hard drives through the mail across the country uh, to finish the record. So anyway, this is uh, one of the rock songs on the album. And uh, I don't know what to say about it other than I hope you like it. Honey, please check it out. It's called Get a Life.
There you have it, folks. Get a life. I think that's going to be the first single. I think we're going to be trickling out singles every two weeks this fall. And then I think maybe dropping the album January 1st. Um, it's all about that good. <laughs> I I personally think that's real good shit. And it's all about that good. So if you like that, you will like the album. And it's called Cool Kids. Because it's really an album about Nashville. Um. We were pretty interested in not writing songs about he loves me, she loves me, they don't love me, I love them, but they don't know I exist, I'm sad, unrequited love. We actually wanted to write a song about what it's like climbing through the sewage ladder of Nashville. And then also, uh, Rachel's mother passed away um, a few months ago, actually, from cancer. So a lot of the record is her dealing with her mom being sick and actually... That's uh, in Guild of Life. We she dips into that in that second verse. Um, uh, back home, Mama's on the brown couch, emphysema breathing, TV on in the background. Like she's she really kind of explored some of that. I was grateful that she let me into that world, and some of that is on the album. It's 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 a beautiful album. It's deep. It's fucking awesome. I love it. I hope you guys like it. Let's check out some more questions here. Brian Gibbons says. I'd love to know how you prepare for a tour. I'm fascinated by what it's like behind the scenes. What's your practice regimen each day? What do you need to do to get your gear ready? Are you responsible for making a bunch of trips to Sam Ash to buy strings, picks, cables, etc.? Or are those things provided by the artist or record company? That kind of stuff. Also assume you're setting up and breaking down everything by yourself. Yes. Probably doubling up on rooms while on the road. Yes. By the way, I got tickets to see you at the New York City show. Any sort of meet greet situation will you be at the merch table so I can say hello? All right. So a lot to unpack here. All great questions. Let's just take them one at a time. What's your practice regimen each day? Um, I don't practice this stuff each day. When um, when I got the gig, I learned it and I committed it to memory. And I will occasionally get it under my fingers a little bit if we haven't played a show in a minute. But at this point, I'm I know the material. Now, we're rehearsing tonight before we leave tomorrow because we added a song and we added a cover. And um, so the rehearsal tonight is just we're going to run the same set a couple times that we've been doing, make sure it's super tight. That usually goes off without a hitch. And then we're going to make sure we've got these two new additions to the set hammered. And then it's loadout tonight for the tour. So, you know, if there's a break between uh, between runs or shows, we'll get a rehearsal or two in. But uh, no one, ho hopefully no one's needing to practice every day, at least practice the material. If, if Ethan's like practicing scales every day, that's fine. I don't personally do that. I, I don't, and not because I don't need to or anything like that. I just don't think it's a great use of my time. I actually don't have time to do that. And, um, doing that for a couple hours a day wouldn't really move the needle on my performance at the show coming up. So, um, I hope that answered that question. He says, what do you need to do to get your gear ready? 
Yeah, that just depends on if your gear needs a setup. Um, you know, I definitely will go through, change all my strings, wipe everything down. I switched out some pit guards just for aesthetic flavor. I switched out some pots for actual gear stuff that needed help. Um, and I think I think that's about it. Pretty basic maintenance. Are you responsible for making trips to Sam Ash to buy strings, picks, cables? Yes. Uh, part of the band leader duties is it's it's my job to go out and uh, make sure we have what we need. I, I had to go get a guitar vault. We will be traveling with a guitar vault. So instead of us carrying all of our individual guitars, these guitars will all live in a vault. You know, I wanted I wanted to get everyone their own microphones to avoid COVID stuff. Like it's my job to figure all that out. And uh, we have a really great relationship. I've always had a great relationship with the Guitar Center, the GC Pro here. Uh, shout out to Greg Glazer, who has been helping me since 2011 acquire gear for tours. Uh, let's see. Is that stuff provided by the Artist Record Company? Um, no, not really. I mean, if I needed to buy stuff for Morgan, then yeah, she, you know, her, the label pays for that. But in terms of us getting our own strings or picks, that's all up to us. Um, what else do we have? I assume you're setting up and bringing down everything yourself. We are, unfortunately, doing that. Probably doubling up on rooms. Yes, unfortunately. By the way, I've got tickets. We'll be doing a meet and greet. It really depends on the vibe. Um, you know, I think we're trying to be as careful as possible. We may meet you outside to say hi, but the chances of us huddling up in a corner and having a beer at Webster Hall are honestly pretty low. We're not super uptight about it like some camps are but we are trying to be careful so this is a unique tour we want everyone to stay safe so we can keep doing it so it's nothing personal if we can't say hi my what i've been telling people is to reach out to us day of and uh we'll kind of just go from there he says more questions so many questions because you're absolutely living the dream that i think many of us have and we're living vicariously through you okay on the day of a show do you have any free time or are you having to rehearse practice in your hotel um Hopefully no one's practicing or rehearsing in their hotel unless there's like a specific note. Um, if I say to Ethan, hey man, on the outro of Other Side, that slide thing, can you can you grab that? He may want to pull out his lap steel in the hotel and like work that part out. But um, hopefully my boys and uh, ladies are not needing to rehearse in the hotel. Um, we do a sound check every day. Well, okay, let me let me finish these questions. He says, what time do you sound check? How long does it take to set up and break down? Do you debrief as a band after each show on what you want to do differently or better the next night? So let me try to answer all this in one uh, quick block. Usually, yeah, we get a sound check that um, is about an hour, maybe a little more. And that includes getting all your gear on stage, getting everything mic'd up. And then you got time to run a couple of songs so that the front of house engineer can get a vibe on mixing you. Um now, what I've done is I've written out the set list that, because here's the deal, we're not yet traveling with our own crew, which means we don't have someone running monitors for us or someone running the front of house sound for us that knows us or knows our set. We're relying, the venue basically provides that. So it's a new guy every night who doesn't know anything about us. We have a stage plot that we advance to them so they, you know, they can anticipate our inputs. We've got stage right guitar, stage left electric, stage left acoustic, center acoustic, center vocal, bass, bass vocal, five-piece drum kit. You know, there's things like that that they already know about. But when we get there, it's part of my job is to get to know those two knuckleheads that are going to be working with us that night and making sure they kind of know what we're doing. Um, I have a set list that I have made that has notes for who has a, is it'll say stage left solo, stage right solo, 
It'll it'll have notations for if the song's up or down, meaning uh, dynamic, big, fast song, slow, moody song. I give that to the front of house and the LD, the lighting director, who is also going to be a house guy, just so they have a head start on the vibe. Um, and then I usually run the sound check, which means we we go line by line, kick drum. Who needs kick drum? So we do a monitor check at the same time that they're checking front of house. Front of house guys getting that kick drum EQ'd for the room. We're also looking wherever stage left or stage right, wherever monitor guy is. We're holding our finger up in the air saying we want whatever line they're doing. So usually start with all the drum lines, kick, snare. We have a second snare on the road, rack, floor, overheads. Get all that, great. Then you do the bass. And again, with every single line, if you want that in your monitor, you're holding your finger up so that the guy can see it. When you get it, when you get what you want, you put your hand down. And we do stage left electric, stage right electric, stage left acoustic. Um, then we do all of our vocals. Morgan's not usually there for this. Then after my shit's done, I pick up her acoustic, either me or Johnny, our bass player, and we check her acoustic and we check her vocal and we get her monitor dialed in. She trusts us to do that to her taste. And once all of those are done, we run a couple of songs. I try to run two songs that try to capture everything we do. So we usually run verse two and chorus two of our single Wilder Days, which is what we end with. And then we do verse a verse and chorus of our song Matches and Metaphors because Ethan plays acoustic on that. So, you know, everyone can get a sense of like what our, what our vibe is going to be. If we have more time, I always use extra time to rehearse the band. Um, you know, you, you can't put a price on that extra free rehearsal time. So if we have, like for example, for example, when we were at the Ryman, we got we essentially got done with whatever we needed to do with 15 minutes left. And I checked in with the uh, stage manager. I said, hey, can we use all 15 minutes? Stage manager said, absolutely. And I looked at the boys and I said, let's run these three songs, the three that I thought needed to be tightened. Yes, after each show, there is a powwow. It's not a super formal. Uh, there's, there's not a stenographer taking notes. But there are, I usually have notes uh, about things that could be better. Something could always be a little better, a little tighter. Uh, we talk about set lists. We talk about flow of the show, what needs to change, what could be better. So we're constantly talking. I mean, we take it really seriously, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, the idea that we're all out there uh, partying or, or whatever, which we've got a couple of sober people in our camp. Um, it's just not the case. We value being healthy. We value sleep. And we value doing as good a job as we can for the fans. We'll do one more question that we do in the song. Dan Stewart says, now that touring's taking up a lot of your time, do you see songwriting and your personal projects, e.g. Lunar Satan, taking a backseat for the time being? Can't imagine what it's like trying to juggle it all. Yeah, unfortunately, I have, I've been pretty overwhelmed with this current project just because there's been a lot of work on the front end of getting us birthed. Um, you know, this band was put together in the summer. Morgan put out her record independently in March. This she had kind of a uh, an OG Virginia band that generally wasn't pros, and uh, anyway, they weren't going to make the level up to where we're at now. So this band got put together, and then she signed her deal, a major label deal with Sony, and now they're relaunching the record. We're doing this two month tour. She's never toured like this. Getting Ethan in the band, like just getting everything together, it's just been a big labor. For everybody, for our management, for Morgan, for me, um, for Sadler, who kind of produced and is sort of shepherds the band. And I have not really been able to do other stuff. I've got a poetry book that I'm trying to get published. 
Um, I've got another podcast with Katie Featherston that we have like eight episodes in the can, but we're just trying to figure out how to launch it well. Um, I do two podcasts a week with Bob Schneider. I write a song a week for my song game. I still have been doing co-writes. I produced an album for Birmingham artist uh, Anna Grace Beatty that's coming out this fall. Uh, I played all the guitar. I did a few sessions like where I did all the guitars on a couple of records, the new Bob Schneider record. It has been uh, mildly overwhelming. I, I tend to thrive in that kind of chaos, but um, now that the band, that Morgan's Morgan's band is my priority, and uh, we, we're at a birthing point, and there's only so much I can do from the road. Uh, oh, and also I do this thing called Metal Up Your Podcast. So, um, yeah, I, I'm I'm being forced to sort of carve out some free time from those other things, which is kind of painful but kind of necessary. And um, it'll be good for me. And then, of, of course, when this tour is over, we're going to have a little bit of time off and I can jump back into all the things I want to do, like Lunar Satan Volume 2, like my poetry book, which is actually completely finished. I just have to figure out a way to publish it. Um, this project with Attention Machine with Rachel Loy. Uh, and then, of course, still writing for my publishing company. So thank you for the interest and for the question. Good God, I've been talking forever. Let's take a break. And listen, speaking of, of uh, Lunar Satan, I had a new single come out on my birthday uh, about a month ago. It's called Lord of the Vampires. I think it's fucking awesome. It is definitely influenced by the stonier, doomier vibes of Monster Magnet and uh, All Them Witches. And I think it might be my favorite Lunar Satan song. Here it is, Lord of the Vampires.
Morgan actually told me the other day, she was like, I listen to your Lunar Satan stuff. And uh, she was like, it's awesome. It's, it's going to be my workout music from now on. I'm like, okay, <laughs> maybe we can co-write sometime and uh, bring these uh, two worlds together. I'm sure all of her fans would love that. Let me get through some more of these questions. Actually, let me refresh this because I think more have come in. And again, I'm trying to hit them in the order in which they were received. Christian Poe says, uh, where are some of your favorite places on the road to visit to try local cuisine? Also, what's a typical show day look like for you guys on this tour? Best place to eat in the country, in my opinion, is New York City. And there's actually a really great pizza place right off the, I believe it's off the J at the Marcy stop. I can't remember what it's called. Isabel knows. Um, we always think about that place because when we got married, we, we camped out there. We went there like every day. Uh, but you can get any kind of food you want there, and it's all really good. Los Angeles also has great food. Um, you know, I could probably get specific with places to visit, but I don't know if we have time for that. There's a great, uh, in Columbus, uh, Ohio, there's a great Germantown kind of area that has this awesome German place. I can't remember what it's called, unfortunately. Um, but I, I'm pretty easygoing when it comes to food. You know, the, the food sitch in the States has just gotten great. If you're in a major city, you can find something fucking awesome. Um, I've watched plenty of episodes of diners, drive-ins and dives. So if they're all out there. You just gotta be willing to look for them. A typical show day looks like, uh, waking up early, leaving the hotel, getting into the city that we're at and, uh, hopefully having a healthy lunch somewhere and load in is usually probably going to be early to mid afternoon. And then we sound check and then hopefully we can get to a hotel for, to clean up for the show, then we play the show, then we load out, and then we go to our hotel. It's not very glamorous. Um, you know, when we're on a bus, it's gonna be more comfortable and a little easier, but for now we're in a Sprinter, which is kind of like in between a 15 passenger van and a bus. It's like a big, it's like a big van, but it has bunks in it. It has like a bench, you know, it's a little more comfortable than a van. So that's how we're rocking it this fall, boot camp style. Um, on a bus, it's kind of a different deal. You roll at night, you don't stay in hotels. You get hotel rooms as what we call cleanup rooms where everybody goes, you maybe have one or two of those. Everyone goes and takes a shower. The driver has a room, he's sleeping during the day. And your bus is basically like where you live because the bus has couches, a Wi-Fi, a bed, you know, your bunk. Um, it's, it's really comfortable. It can be your green room if there's not a green room at the venue. It's just like immediate privacy. So uh, with the Sprinter, it's a little different. I think we're going to be trying to get to that hotel pretty soon after each of our shows. Josh Mellinger says, any recommendations for some not-so-well-known horror movies for spooky season? Thank you. Oh, man, so many, dude. So many. I can't say I've seen a lot of good ones recently. I really just can't say that. Now, maybe that's because I've been so busy. I haven't had a lot of free time. Or maybe it's just a weird time for movies. I've, I've really not been paying attention to new films at all, um, except for the occasional thing that gets on my radar that I actually have time to watch. But I will tell you, about 10 years ago, shit was happening. And there's here are a few things to just keep an eye out for. Ty West, a young director. Well, he was young 10 years ago. Who knows now? But uh, he made a couple of movies in a row that are worth checking out. One's called The House of the Devil. And then his second film, which is my favorite of the two, is called The Innkeepers. Both really good horror movies, especially The Innkeepers. Now, a movie I rewatched recently on vacation, and it literally fucking scared me, is a movie from, I think, 2001 called Session 9. Now, here's my recommendation to all of you. If you're, if, you're, if you're the kind of person that is hearing this part of this podcast and you're maybe writing some of these down, 
Here's my uh, advice about session nine. Do not read anything about it. Do not watch the trailer. Just watch session nine. Um, and actually, speaking of Ty West, there's another really good movie he did called In a Valley of Violence, but it's not really a horror movie, but I do recommend watching that. There's a dude named, uh, I think, S. Craig Zeller, who did a movie called Bone Tomahawk. Highly recommend Bone Tomahawk, starring Kurt Russell. Um, he did another movie. His second film is called Brawl on Cell Block 99. Not a horror movie, but a horrific movie, if that makes sense. I would check out, a uh, if you like the movie The Cell with Jennifer Lawrence, there's a movie that not a lot of people saw that's really great and really trippy, psychedelic, bloodbath horror movie called Excision. I would recommend Ben Wheatley's movie Kill List, although it's got a very brutal ending. There's another movie that people didn't see much called Lovely Molly, a movie called Yellow Brick Road, a really great French film called Le Vide, L-I-V-I-D-E, that scared the shit out of me. And speaking of French films, I highly recommend 2004's Hot Tension, and I recommend 2008's Martyrs. Um, if we're just going to stay on the French train, there's another really great one called... Uh, Frontiers. What else is coming to the old noodle? Super fun satanic movies. The Babysitter. Check out The Babysitter and check out Satanic Panic. Two movies worth seeing. The Brian De Palma musical Phantom of the Paradise from the 70s is worth seeing. Another 70s Brian De Palma horror film I highly recommend. It's called Obsession. Not a lot of people saw that. At least no one really talks about that anymore. Um, the wildest movie I've ever seen is a movie from the 80s called Society that I believe was written and produced by Brian Usna, who would then go on to do, believe it or not, the Honey, I Shrunk the Kids movies. Um, Peter Jackson's first movie, the guy that did Lord of the Rings, he did a really great campy bloodbath movie called Dead or Alive, or it's called Dead Alive. Highly recommend that. Super fun for Halloween. Um, a great Christmas-themed Halloween movie called Better Watch Out, I would recommend. And of course, Black Christmas, if you guys haven't seen that. Both the original and the remake are worth seeing. Also, one of the best remakes ever from 2013, Evil Dead. Check that out. If you like anthology horror movies like I do, I highly recommend the VHS series. I recommend the ABCs of Death series. Um, you can't go wrong with... Uh, uh, there was a great series on Shudder last year called Creep Show, which is basically a revamp of Tales from the Crypt uh, from, from the old comic books. So I believe that's uh, <laughs> I believe that's about enough of that. Hopefully that gave you some uh, starting points. And then uh, you can go on your own journey and let me know where you land. All right, we got a few more of these. This says, uh, a question for Clint, since he's a dad of a human, LOL. How do you deal with your daughter and discipline? I'm in no means an abuser, but I find it difficult to get my daughter to listen sometimes. She's also Nova's age, which is seven, by the way. He says, I love her very much, but she can be hard to deal with sometimes. Thanks in advance for your advice. Well, I really appreciate that, Chris, in terms of, uh, I appreciate your struggle with that because it's hard. Being a parent is hard shit. There's no way around it. And you can have a lot of good ideas about what kind of parent you want to be. We had all of our versions of that. Um, we had our crunchy, um, you know, no formula. And I mean, all the, all the stuff that people argue about. Is the kid going to sleep in bed with us? We're going to let him cry it out. Let him self-soothe. self soothe, And really what it comes down to is you have to figure out whatever works for your family. Now, when it comes to discipline, uh, you know, I will say this. I don't judge anyone. Um, you know, we have relatives, my, my, my in-laws, my sister, 
they have ways of disciplining their kids that I don't do. Um, but you did ask me and I'll tell you my opinion. I don't think hitting your kids, uh, is a good idea for lots of reasons. I don't really think it works. Um, and I don't think that in the long run that you want to, uh, incentivize your kids to be good on fear of you being physically violent with them. Now, maybe someone out there is rolling their eyes going, spanking your kids, not physical violence, chill out. It's like, well, I mean, from where I see it, it is physical violence. They're tiny kids. You are a grown up. And uh, I think there are better ways to reason with your kids. Now, I, you know, if you could come stay in my house, it's not like every time my daughter is a little asshole, we, we sit down and have a kumbaya and, and the world, you know, is in perfect harmony. We have really tough days too. Uh, we absolutely do not resort to physical violence with our kid. Uh, we try to stay away from negative incentives in general. Um, we try to make it more about re rewarding with positive incentives. Again, I get it. That sounds real idealistic. It's hard to do in the moment when life's busy and you're scared of COVID and your parents are sick and you had a shitty day at work and you stubbed your toe. I get it. Um, but I think there, I think you can like maybe lean towards positive reinforcement for your kids where uh, they get something good for doing what you want them to do. We do deprive, you know, the negative stuff. We do deprive her of things that she likes if we have to, if it comes to that. But we've really found that like the things that she loves, like some screen time or she loves to sleep in bed with us. That's like a huge treat for her. So we're able to sort of get her motivated with positive stuff. Um, I really just don't think you want your kid being afraid of you. Uh, I just, there's such a balance there between your kids respecting your authority, which I think is very important. That's, you know, it's very important to me as a dad. Uh, but I don't want her to be afraid of me. And it's important that she knows that, like, usually when we have a big disciplinary moment, um, I, I carve out time when, like, the, the storm passes to talk about it. Doesn't take long. It's easy to be like, hey, do you know why? that happened? Do you know what to do to avoid that again? And kids are smart, man. That That's actually why I think you should avoid uh, the physical part because kids are super fucking smart. And what you're doing is you're building models for them that they will think of for the rest of their lives when they think of what love is. Uh, you know, you don't want your little girl associating dad's love with, well, he spanked me sometimes and it was like really scary and unpleasant because she's going to carry that into her models of how she navigates through the world. And when you think about the kind of guy you want her to be with, you do not want that. You do not want any kind of physical violence associated with how she feels loved. Because the thing is, kids do feel love through discipline and boundaries. They're looking, they're touching the walls, you know, they're feeling the, the tender walls around themselves for mom or dad to step in and say, hey, I love you too much to let you, whatever, jump off the roof or touch the hot stove or you know, not do your homework or whatever your thing is. So I think you really need to think about the models that you're creating for her that she will live by for the rest of her life, either under tyranny of the model or, um, or as something that she has to overcome to be healthy. Okay. I didn't have great models, for, especially for my dad growing up. And I have to spend a lot of my conscious life as a dad, as a husband, as a man, overriding the software I was, the code I was given. And uh, I don't want that for my daughter. I don't want that for you or your daughter. I don't want that for anybody. So that would be my, uh, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm a musician, but that would be my advice for that. 
And uh, good Lord, I've pontificated enough. How about a song? This is a song by a band called The Living End. Ethan turned me on to them. He made me a mixtape. Isn't that sweet of him? And this is the first song on the first mixtape. It's the first thing I ever heard of The Living End. And I fucking loved it so much that I got way into their record. I bought the record and I'm going to let it uh, play now for you. It's called How Do We Know? And it's from an album called White Noise. Check it out.
The Living End, how do we know? Awesome, awesome trio. That dude's an amazing guitar player. I love that like octave stuff he's putting on his guitar. And it's really fun at my age to still be surprised by great music. There's just so much of it out there. I think there's like a common idea that like, you know, as we all get older, it's like, ah, generation was the best. You know, it's like really tempting to do that until you realize that everyone for fucking ever has thought that. <laughs> so you're like, okay, wait a second. So either this is the first time that a generation has thought that their sh old shit is the better shit. And that's actually true. Or we are doing the same psychological evolutionary. We have the same blind spot that everyone has had forever. What are the chances that we're actually right? They're not good dudes. The truth is there's a ton of great shit out there. We just don't get a lot of it. Our parents didn't get our shit and so on and so forth forever. Um, but it's good to be surprised by stuff because I, I tend to I tend to clamp down. I tend to find my things and like my little my little medicines, my little talismans, my little totems, and uh, they they go with me into my dark places. And so it's nice to come out and uh, like a vampire, expose myself to the light, not be burned to death, a la on Rice's Queen of the Damned, and find a nice song like How Do You Know, How Do We Know Rather by The Living End. We got a few more questions, and I think I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, I usually start these with the best intentions of like really wanting to play a lot of music. I end up talking and getting exhausted. Not that I don't love doing it, but I just mean I feel like I'm doing a lot of talking. And uh, I actually do have to start getting ready for this rehearsal. So let me, I'm trying to get back to the, to the questions. Here we go. What do we got? What do we got? Mark Potter says, hey, Clint, as a new writer on the Patreon train, I downloaded all the recordings both you and Ethan generously share with supporters. I was surprised to see among one group of demo recordings you had covered two songs from U2's pop album. I did Gone and Wake Up Dead Man. He says, I don't know if you've talked about that record on the podcast, but what drew you to those choices? I bought pop when it was released and listened to it quite a lot at the time. I also saw the band in Memphis on the Pop Mart tour. At the time, I was really into the album, and I view it as the last time U2 were actually interesting. Anyway, what's your relationship with Pop? Great question. Pop's my favorite U2 album. I think I have talked about that on the podcast. It's their 1997, sort of the, the height of their 90s indulgences. They famously went on the Pop Mart tour where it was this huge show and it had the McDonald's arch. And it's generally considered a shark jumping moment for the purists, the people that who's in their mind's eye, Bono is the guy waving the white flag at Live Aid. The 90s, really starting with Octane Baby, but really culminating with pop was Bono's exploration through pop culture, cynicism, image, branding, flashy stuff, um, finding substance. Uh, you know you're chewing bubble gum, you know what it is, but you still want some. You just can't get enough of that lovey-dovey stuff as he sings in the song Discotheque. The reason that I put those songs on there is because I had a guy reach out to me uh, to, uh, in, a, in a session capacity and he he didn't know anything about me. He found me on this thing called Air Gigs where you can you can offer session rates for people. And I usually just play guitar on people's songs or bass or I'll produce something for them. And uh, he was like, hey, I want to cover a... Uh, he wanted to cover the song Please, which is a deep cut on pop. And he was like, I just love this U2 album. Most people don't, you know, it's more obscure than say the Joshua Tree, for example. He was like, but I'd really love to like reimagine this song. And I was like, dude, I am your fucking guy for that because I love every song on pop. So he, what he wanted us to do is he wanted me to deconstruct the whole album and sort of rearrange it, kind of like the cover of our black and EPs. And then he was going to sing it. And 
So I did that with the song Please, and I sang it as a as a guide for him to and then I would send him like the stems without vocals and he ended up making a record of pop, kind of this pop reimagined thing. But I basically produced it and played all of it. Um and so in that process, I put my own vocals on every song and I, I've actually thought about getting it mixed and releasing it. But those are the two that I thought turned out well. And uh, that's where that comes from. That's my relationship with pop. Thank you for that question. Sean Stanglin says, you guys are playing on the Metro stage on November 5th. How many gigs have you played in a venue that Metallica has also played? Awesome question. The only one I know for sure without looking, I'd have to look at that, um, the Raven tour, the All for One Raven tour, because those were mostly clubs. Other than like arenas, you know, like I've played the OKC arena. I've played the KFC Yum Center. I've played um, a few of the sheds, but those are so unmemorable. The clubs I remember, I've played the Metro before, um, but also um, the Troubadour comes to mind, stuff like that. But you better believe I'm thinking about it when I'm, especially we're going to be there in a few weeks. I'm going to be thinking about like, ooh, Metallica was just here. Maybe that's a... Maybe James Hetfield spit right there. And if I can rub a wound in that, his DNA will get inside me and I'll be able to write better songs. Who knows? Anyway, I probably won't do that. Jamila says, ooh, I have so many questions. And yet none were asked. Um, well, Jamila, I guess uh, I guess we'll just have to catch you down the line on that. I do appreciate all your emails, by the way, and I need to respond to them. We've been quite busy, as I'm sure you've heard on the episodes. Um, so... Uh, I'll look forward to that. Namarta asks, what books and or cassettes did you bring with you? Great question. I actually have my stack of shit <clears throat> ready to go in my studio. So I will tell you both of those things now. Let me grab the cassettes. So listen, I'm going to be buying cassettes when I'm out there for sure. So I, I wanted to limit myself to 10. Uh, and actually picked out nine. And here they are. I have Van Halen. Now this is a bit of a cheat because I have this awesome cassette that has Women and Children First on side A and Fair Warning on side B. And as I've gone through my Van Halen journey, those are two of my current favorites. I have Taylor Swift's Folklore. That will surprise absolutely nobody. Um, I have Sepultura, Chaos AD, which is a record I've just really, really been in, enjoying lately. It was one of my favorites as a kid. I have Metallica Reload. That's my, uh, that's my magic bullet. I have Dave Matthews Band Before These Crowded Streets, which is a massive treat to have on cassette. I have Billie Eilish's new album, Happier Than Ever. Excited about that. Uh, I only let myself take one Bob Dylan record, and I grabbed the longest one, which is um, 1966's masterpiece, Blonde on Blonde. I have All Them Witches, Nothing As The Ideal, which I love that album. You heard a song from that earlier. And I have Alice in Chains' self-titled, the uh, Three-Legged Dog album, which has this awesome you know, green case, but with the blue cassette. I always love the packaging of, of that. I, of course, have the CD in 95 when it came out. Uh, for books, I'm also anticipating purchasing books while I'm on the road, which I often do, often find myself meandering through bookstores. Um, but here's what I'm taking. I'm taking uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Quentin Tarantino, his post-movie novelization of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I'm real excited about it. It's gotten really good reviews, and I absolutely love that movie. It's probably my second favorite Tarantino movie now, which is saying a lot because most people who've made movies as good as he has, they don't later in the game, they don't keep keeping up with that level. That's just really rare. Um, you guys have heard me talk about David Shields. He's actually, he's absolutely one of my favorites. Um, 
This is a book called The Trouble with Men, Reflections on Sex, Love, Marriage, Porn, and Power. And, um, you know, the, the books that really changed my life, uh, How Literature Saved My Life, and then also a book called Reality Hunger. And I heard about David because he was a guest on uh, Brett Easton Ellis' podcast, who you guys have probably heard me talk about that. Uh, he's a big hero of mine. I've underlined some stuff here because I've already started it. Let's see what this says. Um, let's see. Actually, this won't make sense out of context. And this book is really a lot about like sex and power. And it might be awkward if I read that. I'm taking Joan Didion's Slouching Towards Bethlehem. And I also am taking her book, The White Album. She was a, uh, a late 60s sort of essay writer. She wrote fiction too, but... Um, You'll have to just check her out for her flavor. I've got here Charles Bukowski's Open All Night. These were new poems. Um, after he died in 94, his estate basically kept put, putting out posthumous po books of poetry, of which he has so many. I mean, I'm talking maybe 20 books of poetry he never released. These books have like 300 poems each in them. And uh, I collect all of them, but this is actually one that I've never had. And I found it at a, a wonderful bookstore here in Nashville called McKay's. And it's just, it's just great poetry. Um, now it says, these poems written between 1970 and 1990 are part of an archive that Charles Bukowski left to be published after his death on behalf of the author, the publisher. Okay, blah, blah, blah. So these are actually uh, from the 20 year span of the 70, 70 to 90. So that's really fun. I have Raymond Carver's Where I'm Calling From, which is selected short stories. I can't recommend Raymond Carver enough for you uh, literary nerds out there. He has passed away, but his poetry and his short stories um, are just absolutely hitting me in a, in a wonderful spot as, a, as I lurch towards my middle life and uh, as I watch my daughter grow. Now, the last book I want to mention is Wendell Berry, who is a, an agrarian farmer in Kentucky. And uh, I mostly came up reading his fiction. He has a short story book called That Distant Land. And then he has these novels, uh, Jaber Crow, Hannah Coulter, the Memory of Old Jack, um, where it sounds boring. Believe me, I know. He's writing about a farming, a, a fictionalized farming community in Kentucky called Port William. And what it is, is you just get to know this town. It's, it's this fully realized community of people. And the, all the books are kind of about these different characters. And it's centered around a farming community, but it's really about a lot more than that. It's about relationships. It's about uh, generations. It's about legacy. It's about God. And um, he also writes poetry. And this one is just called New Collected Poems. If you want to get one, uh, a shorter one to just check it out, he has one called A Timbered Choir that I'd recommend. And I wanted to read two poems that uh, that just really speak to me in this kind of moment that I'm in in my life. And if you if you like this flavor, and don't worry, they're not long. Uh, if you like this flavor, you will like Wendell Berry. And these, both of these give you a, a deep sense of, um, of his spirit. So these are both poems about peace, by the way. This first one is called The Want of Peace. It says, all goes back to the earth, and so I do not desire pride of excess or power, but the contentments made by men who have had little, the fishermen's silence, receiving the river's grace, the gardener's musing on rose. I lack the peace of simple things. I'm never wholly in place. I find no peace or grace. We sell the world to buy fire, our way lighted by burning men. And that has bent my mind and made me think of darkness and a wish for the dumb life of roots. 
um, that hits me like a fucking arrow, first of all. Now, I like these two poems together. The next one is called The Peace of Wild Things. And he says, When despair for the world grows in me, and I wake in the night at the least sound, in fear of what my life and my children's lives may be, I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water, and the great heron feeds. I come into the peace of wild things, who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief. I come into the presence of still water, and I feel above me the day blind stars waiting with their light. <clears throat> For a time, I rest in the grace of the world, and I am free. So <clears throat> that's his vibe. And uh, that shit is just medicine for me. It's just so beautiful. And, um, you know, poetry is pretentious and uh, confusing a lot. But uh, I find it really rewarding to to dip into it and to find different things that kind of stoke the fires of your feelings and your emotions. And uh, Jeff Tweedy has this great quote where he says, good art doesn't make you feel anything. It helps you identify the way you already feel. And um, that's what that stuff does for me. So I would encourage you to check it out. And if you guys are, are listening to anything cool or reading anything cool, I'm always open to suggestions. Uh, I don't have a lot of free time to investigate and I kind of know what I like and I, I know what, what avenues I'm going down, but that's not to say that I, um, I don't look forward to being turned on by whatever it is, is getting you guys through your dark nights. Um, and with that, I'm going to play the last song. I, I heard the song for the first time just yesterday. Um, it was the fourth anniversary of Tom Petty's passing. And Mike Campbell was on Instagram paying homage to his dear buddy, Tom Petty. And he played a deep cut from, I believe it's 1989's Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers record, Into the Great Wide Open, which has the songs Into the Great Wide Open and also Learning to Fly, which most people know those songs. But Mike played a really endearing version of a song called You and I Will Meet Again. And it was really touching and really moving. And of course, Mike Campbell's not known for his singing. He's known for his guitar playing. Uh, but I, I found his performance so charming and there was clearly a lot of emotion in it. It clearly meant a lot to him. And so last night I was just taking a deep dive and listening to the actual studio recording. And God damn it, it's a testament to that dude, to Tom Petty as a songwriter, because you know all the hits. He's got like 50 classic songs. And then you pull this deep cut out of nowhere that I've never heard. I've had this record forever. I may have played it casually, but I've never really listened to it. And it's as good as anything I think he's ever done. And I will leave you with this song because we've been here a long time. I appreciate everyone taking an interest in my world and asking me questions. I hope you enjoyed some of the answers. I hope you got turned on to some, some good music, maybe some of these books here at the end. But um, I'm going to leave you now with a really great Tom Petty song called You and I Will Meet Again. Enjoy. Sing on. 